John 1. John 1, 1 to 5 and 14 to 18. It says this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. And from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who was at the Father's side he has made him known. Friends, with is a powerful word. W-I-T-H. With is an incredibly powerful word. With changes things. When you add the word with, it, it, it does something. It changes things. With is a tipping point word that brings together things that were separate for the grammar nerds like me out there, with is a preposition. It's a preposition, which means that it's a bridging word. It's a bridging word that expresses the relationship between two words, two clauses, two phrases, two concepts. It brings things together. With is an incredibly powerful word. Have you ever been in one of those environments where in order to get there, in order to be there, you had to have some sort of special access. You had to be somebody special. Okay, like I have once, all right? And it wasn't because I was special. It was because I knew somebody special. Like have ever you been, any of you ever been backstage somewhere where you couldn't get there unless you had backstage pass or walked in with somebody special? Thank you for a hand. Uh, backstage pass or walked in with somebody special. That happened to me once. Uh, some of you may remember the late Rich Mullins, uh, Christian artist for, for many years. He was a well-known Christian musician. Come on, somebody. Rich Mullins, people, thank you for crying out loud. Are you alive? Thank you. So I had this friend. I had this friend who played with Rich Mullins for a couple of years, played in his band. Good friend. I dated his sister. Um, I ended up making the right decision later on. Yeah. I ended up making the right decision later on. <laughs> Is that on video? <laughs> okay. So I had this friend who played in Rich Mullins' band and toured with him a couple of years. And uh, so a couple of friends of mine and I went to go see my friend in concert. And it was right before the concert, and we were all backstage uh, with Rich and his band. We were on first-name basis, of course. And uh, we're sitting there right about to start, and we're praying together. <laughs> and and there were three of us who were the sort of interlopers, you know, sort of these outsiders. And, and the band's looking around at us like, who are these guys? My friend says, oh, them, they're with me. Friends, with is a really powerful word. 
because it brings things together. With is a word that expresses togetherness. There with me. She's with child. Play with us. Come with me. With can be an extremely powerful word. Did you know that one of Jesus' names includes this very concept of withness? One of the names that Scripture actually gives to Jesus expresses him as God with us, the word Emmanuel. And this is a name that fits for Jesus because Jesus is how God goes from a far-off concept to being near and real and personal. The witness of Jesus is how God goes from this sort of intellectual concept, this sort of nebulous, far-off concept, to an embodied reality in the flesh here and now. Friends, Jesus is the ultimate, the ultimate example of the power of with, because Jesus is God personally demonstrating himself to us. Jesus is God in flesh and blood. We get this straight from John 1 that we read earlier. Verse 14 says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Which is to say that in the person of Jesus, God came to be with us in the flesh. And not just to visit, not just passing through, but to live with us, among us. What this means, and why this is so critical to to the Christian faith, what it means is that Jesus participated fully in all that it means, in all that it means to live a human life. This is a critical piece of Christian understanding and doctrine because Jesus coming in flesh and blood, Jesus participating fully in human life means that his perfect sinless life could count for us. If he hadn't come in flesh, if he hadn't been here with us in the flesh, his sinless and perfect life could not have counted for our sinful in the flesh life. And if he hadn't come, we would not be with him. We would be apart from him. We would be lost. We would be without hope and without God in the world. So Jesus being flesh and blood is a critical Christian belief because if Jesus hadn't participated fully in all that it means to live a human life, then we would not be with God. So the importance of this with idea, this withness of Jesus is something we learn in John 1. Turn there if you haven't already, John 1. I'm going to jump in and spend uh, quite a bit of time on verses 1 and 2 especially. But we're going to jump into here, the first section, John 1. Read along with me. It says this in verses 1 and 2. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Now let's focus on that first phrase in verse 1a. We're going to put this on screen here for you. In the beginning was the Word. In the beginning was the Word. What John is doing here is actually pretty radical stuff. What John is doing here is pretty radical stuff. He's taking Jewish verbiage and he's putting it with a Greek idea. We'll explain that in just a second. To illustrate this idea of Jesus being with us in the flesh. 
Let me show you how he does this. Now, John starts out here by saying, we've got this phrase up here for you, in the beginning. This is exactly the opening phrase of the book of Genesis where it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. John is echoing that Genesis uh, phrase here on purpose. He's not just accidentally saying, oh, in the beginning, this is what happened. He's saying it because he wants to prick the ears of, of the Jews that are reading this. And if you were a Jew and you're reading this and you're going, in the beginning, you're, you're thinking, oh, I know where this is headed. I know where this is going. I know what he's referring to in Genesis. But listen to what John says. He says, in the beginning, not God created the heavens and the earth. He says, in the beginning was the word. Now he'll prove later on that Jesus was there at creation, that he was an agent of creation. Don't worry, that's in there. But we're not going to focus on that today. We're going to focus on this idea of what John says about Jesus' withness. So he says, in the beginning was the word. And to a Jew listening to this, they think they know what this means. But he says, not in the beginning God created. He said, in the beginning was the word. This is a bit of a different twist that they weren't used to. In the beginning was the word or the logos. You see that word there. Some of you may know that word logos or or logos. It's just the word for word. So he surprises a Jew who's reading this by adding this Greek idea of the word, the logos, instead of in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, it's in the beginning was the logos, was the word. But the Greeks of the day would have heard this and probably understood this pretty easily. You see, the Greeks understood this word or this logos to be, and I'm going to go a little nerdy here for you in just a second here. So you may want to write this down. The logos was the impersonal principle of reason, capital R, that ordered the whole universe. Okay? The sort of philosophical, far-off concept of the truth that sort of undergirded everything was this, this logos, this truth that made the world go round, kind of. And so that's sort of a, a Greek concept. So what Luke is doing here, and we'll touch on this a little later too, is he's talking to the Jews, and then he's saying, ah, but this. And then there's this Greek concept. But this Greek concept would have been something that's an impersonal principle of reason that sort of ordered the universe. So to a Greek of the day, you could say, who created the world? They would say, the Logos. (laughs) You could say, who made the sea and the skies, the heavens and the earth? And they would say, the Logos. Uh, You could say, who will win the World Series? And they would say, the Logos will determine who will win the World Series. You could ask anything, and the answer was basically the Logos, because it's the order, it's the principle of order and truth that made the world go round, in their minds at least. So, a Greek would hear John 1.1, and their ears would also prick up. They would perk up and they would hear, oh, okay, in the beginning was the Logos. Sure, I get it. So, so far in the text of John 1, John is perking up the ears of both Jews and Greeks. And at this point, he is saying the word has always existed. In the beginning was the word. But look at 1b through 2, the second half of 1 and verse 2, for some more insight here, for some more insight about the word. It says, and the word was with God and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Now, this is some new territory here. The word has always existed, but it is also something more, he says. The word wasn't just sort of in the presence of God, but John tells us that the word was God. And I'm going to say this slowly, nerd time again, because this is an important distinction to understand here. He's not just saying 
The word was like around God, I and mean, that's true, but he's also saying the word was God, which is to say he was not merely in the presence of God, but there existed this kind of uh, interactive reciprocity. There was a relationship going on between the Word and the Father. An interactive reciprocity. It's like, it's like an any meaningful relationship, this interactive reciprocity. It means that when you talk to one, you've talked to the other. When you've met one, it's like you've met the other. When you interact with one, you've sort of functionally interacted with the other. When you mess with one, you've messed with the other. It's like when a kid you know, goes to get the desired answer from the parents. Goes to one, gets the no, right? Kid inevitably goes to parent number two, asking the same question, and gets inevitably the same no. And if the kid's old enough, the kid usually says something like, I knew you'd say that which means the kid understands that there's this sort of interactive reciprocity. It's when you're on a team and someone on the other team commits a flagrant foul against your team member. You can be sitting on the bench, and if there's an interactive reciprocity going on on the team, you can use that in your sports lingo, by the way. If there's an interactive reciprocity on the team, it's going to show up in ESPN soon. And somebody... Somebody on the other team says something or does something flagrantly to your team member. You can be on the bench and you're up. You're like, let's do it. Let's go. That's interactive reciprocity. If you've messed with my team member, you've messed with me in a sense. That's some of this interactive reciprocity. If you're a parent and you've had a kid who is off at school or, or somewhere else and gets bullied, when, when that rises up in you and you, you, you hate, you don't like that. You hate that. It gets you going. You don't like that. You hurt for your child. That's, that's interactive reciprocity. When you've messed with my child, you've messed with me. That's interactive reciprocity. It's like when somebody starts talking trash about me, my wife is like ready to kill him. When somebody starts talking trash about my wife, my wife is ready to kill him. So what's, what John's saying here is that the Word was with God and the Word was God is like saying that God the Father and God the Son are a perfectly functioning and perfectly united team. They're an interactive reciprocity. We can hardly imagine what that's like because the best relationships on earth don't come close to perfect unity. You've seen glimpses of it and pictures of it here and there with the bulls in the 90s maybe. But we don't experience that. So here's where we are so far in the text. Because John is setting up the text so that we begin to see, and this is where we're headed here, he's setting up the text so we begin to see that God wants to be with us. And so far he's basically established two things. Number one, that the Word has always existed. Number two, that the Word has a personal, perfect relationship with God the Father. And it's a personal thing, not just an idea. But here's where the idea becomes a little bit crazy. Look at verse 14. Here's where the idea takes on craziness, which is wonderful craziness. Verse 14 just says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The Word became flesh 
and dwelt among us. Now we're going to press pause for a bit here because this word dwelt there in verse 14 has a real cool history. Uh, We could do a whole series uh, of a few weeks on this word dwelt here and sort of some of the history of it. Let me point out just a little bit for you here. Exodus 25, 8 and 9 is a cool passage uh, that, that sort of John is drawing from here. Exodus 25, 8 and 9. This is a, a place where the people of God were commanded to set up a tent or a tabernacle, same word, a tent or a tabernacle so that he could come live. It says this in Exodus 25, 8 and 9. Let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Verse 9 says, Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle, that's the word that John grabs from here in verse 14 that we'll talk about in just a second, tabernacle. Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all of its furniture, so shall you make it. The same word used here in Exodus for tabernacle or tent is used, it's a noun there, it's used as a verb here in John 1.14 to say that God tented with us. And this isn't just meant to imply the sort of temporary dwelling. I know we think of a tent as something you set up, you camp in, you put it away, and you go home. It was much more than that uh, back in the day for the Jews. This is a way to say not just that it's a temporary dwelling, but that God came to earth to live with us. So for example, if you're a missionary and, and you're a Bible translator for a new tribe that doesn't have a Bible, and you're trying to get this verse uh, right, then you may want to translate uh, the Greek into an English that says something like, when Jesus came, God was building a house in our village. That's sort of the, the sense of what he's saying here in verse 14. Listen, friends, this is a profound truth. I would like to go so far as to say the idea of God coming to live with us is the most profound truth you will ever come across ever. (laughs) Ever. Ever, ever. Namely, that the perfect, holy, and sinless creator of the whole universe came in flesh and in blood to live with you. You've got to understand what a radical idea this is that John is suggesting here. The idea that the creator God had anything to do personally in the flesh with humanity would have been considered an absolutely crazy idea. If you had asked somebody in John's day, hey, you know the Logos, the, the, the Logos who, who brings order to the world? You know that Logos? Do you know him personally? Would have sounded like crazy talk to people back then. Do I know him personally? No one does. Many of them would have considered it blasphemous to suggest something about the Logos becoming personal. Most would have said it flat out is not even possible to suggest, as Christians do, as John does, to suggest that this far-off creator of the universe came in the flesh to make himself known to you because he loves you. That would have been crazy talk. But John is saying here, 
in John 1 that this word, this logos, is better than anything else you've ever understood about God. This logos lives with us. There is no more profound truth you will ever come across than this. Friends, this also communicates something amazing about the heart of God. God moved into our neighborhood, lived with us because we were apart from Him. We weren't with Him. We had functioned in ways that shook our fists at Him in rebellion against His designs for our lives. And yet, He still came and He came to be with you because you were apart from Him. Which means, which means that God got down on our level so that we could know Him. The perfect, sinless, holy Creator of the universe came down to our level so we could know Him. There was a dad who uh, had two little boys, Conrad, who was three, and Carl, who was five. And one summer, uh, they got into playing uh, rambunctious games of living room football together. (laughs) Dad and Conrad, three, and Carl, Five. It was two-on-one, winner-take-all, knockdown, drag-out, rambunctious games of living room football. Now, when they played, <laughs> every time they played, before they began, the boys would always insist that their daddy go and dress up just like them. So they all had the same uniforms, you know. And so all three would run off into their sort of locker rooms and change into the same uniform every time. Blue jeans and a blue t-shirt. Everybody wearing blue. And so they would come in together for their rambunctious living room football game and and dad would sit there waiting for them. They'd run in and every time they would say the same thing. They had this saying that they would come in and they would look at dad, they would look at themselves, all wearing blue, and they would say, look dad, same same. In fact, the the five-year-old Carl bought dad a a blue mesh football jersey uh, for his birthday because he had one. And when he gave it to his dad, he said, happy birthday, dad. I got you this shirt so that we could be same. Now, when they played football, when they played their living room football, there was one important rule, one important rule. Conrad, the three-year-old, wouldn't let dad play standing, all big and, and scary and towering over him, of course. So instead he had dad get down on his knees and then Conrad, the little three-year-old, would, would put his hand on dad's shoulder and he'd say, there dad, see, same, same. It was a picture of being on the same team, on the same level, entering their world. That same summer, dad was outside working on the house uh, when he scraped his leg, no big deal, just a little little scrape on his leg. But soon after that, uh, 
the three-year-old Conrad uh, fell and, and hurt his knee in that same summer and scraped his leg. And he came up to Dad and he said, Hey, Dad, look, look, same, same. Friends, here's the point. God has experienced what we've experienced. He has felt what we felt. He chose not just to be a big and scary, towering over us relationship. He got down at eye level and in flesh and blood. God experienced what it's like to be human, to be tired and discouraged. He knows what it's like to hurt, to bleed, to experience pain, to be frustrated. Listen, friends, in the pain and the frustration of life, you may be tempted to shake your fist at God and say, why have you left me down here to suffer? You have no idea how badly I'm hurting. But friends, the reality, Scripture says, John tells us, the reality is that God is with us. He does understand. He can understand and point to your wounds and then to his own. And he can say, look, same. Friends, in the person of Jesus, God says, I'm with you. Which means the heart of God was to reach out to those who were apart from him who were far off, who were not with, who were without. And if we understand anything about who God is and what he did in Jesus, we know we're called to do the same, to be with people as God was with us, communicating the love from a God who did not stay far off, but who demonstrated himself to us personally in flesh and blood because of Jesus. That's a God worth following. Let's pray. Lord, we give you praise and we give you glory because you alone are a God worth following. Forgive us for giving our hearts to images of you, to idols that make big promises, but deliver nothing like your son Jesus who came in flesh and blood. We ask, Lord, that you continue to shape our lives in ways that parallel this truth we've talked about today, in ways that accord with the truth that though you could have justifiably left us alone with the weight of our sin to carry ourselves, you loved us.
and you came to know us. You came to be with us, to express in the person of Jesus what we couldn't do for ourselves. Lord, we love you because you've taken away those weights of sin, the burdens we couldn't carry. We ask, Lord, that you would continue to shape us into men and women, into families, into marriages, into a congregation that looks increasingly like your son Jesus. That we would step into places that demonstrate that you're a God who is with us. That you would give us courage and strength and power because we live in faith that you will use us as a part of your kingdom building project, as a part of what you've done in the world and what you did in Jesus. Give us strength, give us courage so that we can continue to become men and women that you created us to be. We love you for that, Lord. We love you for the cross. We love you for Jesus. And ask that you continue to make of us people who express that you are with us. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. This is what we call a time of invitation. It's just a time to respond uh, to the truth of what we talked about today.